You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Genesis, Bereshith in the Hebrew, opens with grand narratives of beginnings and generations, and the New Testament starts with its own genealogy and with four distinct narrative accounts of Jesus, the Anointed One. For traditions that consider theology an interpretive endeavor at the outset then, stories are at the start and psalms and hymns and prophetic verse follow close behind. But somewhere along the line, the propositions and syllogisms and refutations and such that get their start as commentaries on the texts of the scriptures start to make demands of their own and theology becomes, even more than it was, a ground for contest and it seems that the texts that we call the Bible become proof texts rather than stories. Where does that leave us when it comes to theology? Well, Dr. Thomas Gardner's book, Lyric Theology, calls us back to verse and narrative and on ahead into film, reminding us that it can't hurt to come back home when it comes to theology. Christian Humanist Profiles is glad to welcome Dr. Gardner to the show. Tom, thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. That was a beautiful introduction. Well, thank you. Thank you. Your book's uh, central exploration is right there in the title. Your readers are going to undertake investigations that unfold in the lyric mode, receiving the world as both meaningful and as hidden. There wouldn't be a need to write such a book if everyone were already doing this kind of work. So take a moment here at the outset and talk about some of the non-theological lyric thinking and some of the non-lyrical theological thinking that you are distinguishing yourself from when you insist on both elements in your title? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, so let me try the first part of it. I'm a, I'm a poet and I'm a literary scholar. And what I write about mostly and think about is what I call lyric thinking. So I'm, I mean by that poetry, but other creative works that move the way poems do. So um, a lyric is focused on a a single speaker, usually, um, who's um, in the act of finding something. So process is involved. A lyric thinker is grounded in particulars. Uh, He's reaching or she towards something uh, they can't grasp. Uh, They work musically rather than through argument or narrative, and they they create works that are designed to be reperformed um, by the reader or the listener. So that's that's lyric thinking, um, and it goes across lots of different genres. So mostly lyrics are focused on love or memory or uh, description or the inexplicable, and they're not doing theological work. Uh, there are a lot of poets that I love for that. Um, Elizabeth Bishop and Robert Hass and early T.S. Eliot, some Emily Dickinson. So that's lyric lyric thinking that's not theological. And then your other side was what's non-lyrical theological thinking, and that's what you already described in your intro. It's straightforward uh, theology nowadays, thinking about God or suffering or the nature of creation or the Trinity. Um, so I love a lot of theologians. Um, uh, Jonathan Edwards on glory or... David Bentley Hard on beauty or Rowan Williams on on brokenness, but all of that work, the way that you described it is great. It's it's conceptual, it's analytical, it's making arguments. It's not really designed to be uh, re-performed. Um, 
and it's not really performing the text it's examining. So those are the two things that I'm sort of avoiding, steering away from. Um, so my point in the book is that, and you've really already said it, is that creative works um, have the potential to to do theological work, lyric works do. And the way I put it in the book is that they they look at theological ideas, they unfold them from the inside. They try to uh, inhabit uh, the idea. They try to live out the implications of various uh, doctrines, and they do it in a way that readers are um, enabled to join in. They don't really make arguments about theological positions, but they show what the world looks like from within the theological position. So long answer. I, I, I like that. No, 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 no. Very good answer. Very good answer. I want to dwell for a moment on that idea of re-performance because especially in uh, theologies of worship, uh, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, discussion and sometimes uh, conflict over repetition. So in what ways uh, does, you know, re-performance uh, coincide with, for instance, the repetition of the Lord's Prayer or the Apostles' Creed or something like that? Uh, and again, in what ways does it distinguish itself from that kind of repetition? Yes, yeah, so I, I I borrowed the term reperformance from um, uh, a literary scholar named Jonathan Culler, who's got a, a really terrific book out uh, within the last eight years or so on on the lyric. And um, when I when I read the book, I realized, oh, that's what I do in the classroom all the time. When I teach poetry. Um, I break a poem into parts and we sort of examine each part and figure out what's going on in a poem or a lyric work of fiction or something, figure out what's going on in each part. And then we then we try to weave those parts together as a single act of thinking that the, the lyric thinker was doing and going from A to B to C to D, that sort of thing. So you have to, to do that in the classroom or when you write, you have to move across gaps and open spaces and you have to connect fragments and essentially to do that to figure out how the writer made those connections you have to do the connections yourself you have to and this is tricky in the classroom but it's lovely when it works you have to find within yourself in your own world in your own experience a way of connecting a way of seeing how this picture and that picture goes together so I, I essentially call that in the classroom re-performing the poem. And that gives us, when we're finally done, that gives us the whole poem alive in our heads to think with. And that's really different from a way of teaching or thinking in which the poem has a meaning which is there at the end and it's couplet, you know, or the poem has a couple of really good lines that we're going to remember and put in our article or remember for a test. But but I'm really arguing that the poem is this entire act of thinking. And if we can grasp that whole thing and hold it in our heads, then we're really doing the poem. So what I um what I do in my book is I try to re-perform um essentially uh these lyric works and sort of offer them back to the reader as as something to do. So it's it's really not repetition. Repetition would be simply giving back something that's already fixed and stable. It's mm -hmm. it's performing it live in the now, you know, in the moment of reading or in the moment of worship or in the moment of preaching. Sure, sure. Um, 
Um, yeah, well, what it reminds me of is uh, I, I recently read uh, Adrian Noble's book, How to Do Shakespeare, and and the way that he describes performing a uh, a Shakespearean speech is uh, to give the audience the experience of watching someone uh, come up with this thought for the first time. So giving the impression that, you know, these things are occurring to the character as the character is on stage. Right. Is, is that, yeah, is that in the neighborhood? Yeah. Harold Bloom talks about that all the time too. Shakespeare invented that he says. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when an actor prepare, prepares a speech, the actor has to find in herself or himself a way of moving from, from part to part. You know, there's a there's a really good book that I bet you might know by Walter Brueggemann called um, um, it's something like Finally Comes the Poet. Yep, um, I've got it on my shelf right okay. over here. Yep. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's 1989 or 90. It's been around for quite a while, but it had a big effect on me. He's he's talking about to preachers, but he's really arguing that there are a couple of ways of speaking from the pulpit or I think from the classroom or in a book. And one is what we've been calling standard analytical, you know almost repetition but he says there's another kind of speech that's really what i would call lyric speech which is he calls it artistic and dramatic and um, concrete and um, open to others to join in and pushing into danger and uh, new areas and he's really calling for preachers to 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 become poets and i guess i'm i'm sort of saying well here here's here's where it's happening you know it's happening in these poets you know it's happening in isaiah and jeremiah Ezekiel mm-hmm. says, and that's true, um, but it's also happening in some of our really great contemporary artists. Right, right. Well, let's dive into one of those. I mean, your first uh, full chapter is on Seslav Milos, and pardon my pronunciation on that one. I've spent more time with his prose than with mm-hmm. his verse, but uh, his realism, I mean, is something that I definitely recognize in your reading of his poetry. Why is it important when we take on the verse of Milos to keep in mind that human representation is true in a robust sense. And, you know, I, I, once again, I'm going to ask the question of comparison. What other poetic epistemologies, if you will, is Milos setting aside in favor of this poetic realism? Yes. So the, so the, the theological idea that I'm looking at in each of these chapters, um, is called the doctrine of creation. And, and so, and Milos is, is just a perfect place to start. And it's the idea that God created the world out of nothing uh, or nothing save for his desire to share the love in the Trinity uh, with, with uh, human beings who could respond to that gift. And the gift of creation is designed to, uh, to draw out of us praise and longing and desire and, and thirst and, terror, all, all of those sorts of things as a way of seeing deeper into to God's nature, to, to be becoming part of that. So Milos has that idea just so deep in his soul that that's what the world has been designed to do. Um, so the world for him has to be real. It has to be concrete. It has to be particular. It has to be, it has to exist and not be an illusion. And the world that it points to for Milos also has to be real. There has to be a reality beyond it. He calls it lastingness and eternity. Um, and, and he's convinced that we have been designed to receive that gift. And if that's true, then that means language and perception and the ability to shape and make um, are true. 
they're they're accurate they're tools that that can handle something that's real now now they fail all the time and they break down but he's he's always been a believer in the reality and then the reality beyond that and in in our tools so does that make sense yeah 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 and i want to i want to focus on that uh breakdown sometimes because one of the uh, theological notions that I saw coming out of that is the idea of confession, uh, and that Milos, you know, sees the need to confess the failures of poetry. So, I mean, this is not, uh, you know, a uh, an Arthur Miller play where, you know, you have to confess those things that, you know, the community wants you to confess. It seems to emerge out of uh, his very strong awareness of what poetry ought to be in the ways that his own poetry falls short of it. So, yeah. I mean, you know, what does this impulse seem to come from a Catholic place? Does it come from a romantic place? Whence this confession? Yeah. So each of the artists that I look at and that I've looked at in a whole series of books, um, they, they are deeply invested in this idea that the world shows forth God's glory and it's designed to be received as a gift. So they're all invested in that, but they're each in their own way deeply aware of the brokenness of the world you know of, of the glory being wrapped up with darkness or the brokenness of our tools or our failures as thinkers or moral beings really to fully take those things in so milos is just the first of a whole string of these artists i think who wander and struggle and work with their own failures so they're all confessing now milos probably does it as a catholic but um <laughs> but we all do it you know we all we all we all own up to our failures so that's one part of it but here's the thing that i love about milos milos finds that the more he confesses his failures and the failures of all of us to take in the reality that that he senses must be in front of him he finds something in him resisting ending in that dark place there's something in him that even when he says the thing that i tried to grasp i didn't grasp something in him pushes back resists that very thought so it's as if going through the way of brokenness is what leads him to more fully grasp the thing that he can't grasp if it if it makes sense to say that way and and then he thinks quite a bit towards the end of his career about where does that resistance come from and I think part of it is the Holy Spirit in him, right? Resisting the fact that it the world seems meaningless some days, you know, when the, your loved one is lost or you're exiled from the home that you love, all those things that happen to him. There's something in him that resists calling that meaningless, even though he goes down that path for a while. So it's the Holy Spirit in him. Or another answer he gives is that because he continues to resist it, it must mean that that call is still coming to him from outside of him <laughs> and on on almost from outside the world right it's it's coming from god himself it's an eternal kind of call sure so sure I think, and, I and think the, failure and brokenness is the way in for him right right i mean the, there's something you know dantean about that too because i mean you know in the commedia all three parts i mean you have uh several prominent passages where you know the poet spends lines and lines on the inability of his verse to capture the divine before him and you know it seems to me that milos is is doing the same but saying that the things that we take for granted as things that you know are given uh those things we also fail to take in with our language with our imagination with these sorts of things 
Yeah, I think that's right. And you asked for, you know, other other ways of doing poetry, and mm-hmm. he names names, and I probably don't need to go into it too much right now, but just in general. So if if you see that, if you see that there's something you're driving towards, but your language breaks down, well, one way of making poetry that he turns away from is to simply handle those particulars at the level of abstraction, right? So then you don't actually mind if you lose a particular lover's smell of a particular lover's hair or something like that, um, if you keep it at the level of abstraction. And he turns away from that. He just he just detests the side of him or in many of us that 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 play it safe in abstraction. And then he also turns away from people who um give up the struggle to use language to reach with and simply struggle and simply study language itself. And there are a lot of brilliant contemporary poets who do essentially that, who who make poetry focused on language, you know, focused on on what we're looking with rather than using that to to look at something else. So he finds both of those in himself, but he's he's quite fierce of fierce about his resistance to those things. Very good. Well, I want to pause for a moment here and pose a question that started to occur to occur to me during the Milos chapter and recurred as I read through your book. Uh, in what sense are Milos's poems theology, or if you prefer, to what does the genus theology refer, and what makes these poems specimens within that genus that we call theology? Yeah, so that's probably the <laughs> the biggest question of the book. Um, so, I mean. I have a standard, you know, reading a definition of theology. It's theology is thinking about God, it's thinking about creation, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, and so on. Um, and I, I guess what I'm arguing is that what Milos and these other artists are doing are thinking about these these theological issues by doing the issue. I, I guess I mean that literally by living it out by struggling with its implications and really by turning that struggle into praise. You know, in your introduction, you, you talked about the Psalms and I think it's just a, that's the kind of theology I'm thinking about or Isaiah, you know, that I'm, I'm teaching now or um, Jeremiah, you know, it's, it's, it's a different way of doing uh, theology and turning it into a kind of drama. Um, and I guess then what I'm hoping um is that by sort of looking at the way great artists struggle with these problems, of course, across their whole careers, um, I'm I'm sort of giving, I'm just making visible these these extraordinary poetic theological acts in a way that people can spend time kind of living in in them, not just mining, you know, these movies or. Right, not not pulling um, a video clip as a sermon illustration. Right, yeah, but the, but there's something <laughs> else going on in the same way that we live in the Psalms, you know, for for our lifetime, really. That you can you can live in some of these these works for for a long, long time and be just deeply immersed in what it would mean to think of the world as as shining forth, showing forth the grandeur of God. I mean, it's a complicated idea when when you live it live it out in that kind of detail. So I want to move on to the filmmaker in your quartet, uh, Terrence Malick. And I want to talk about a few particular films that you engage. The first one, uh, The Thin Red Line, was my own first encounter with Malick. And the poetic commentaries on war that 
that punctuate that movie are definitely unforgettable. And you describe them as prayers, as describing the Battle of Guadalcanal to God. And, you know, that strikes me as a, a very Augustinian project for a film. So talk to our listeners here. Is Thin Red Line an inherently theological film, or is it a film that theologians have conscripted to their cause? Yeah, so I guess you've set me up to say, I think it's the first. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, now now make the case, sir, make the case. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. so it does seem to me to be a theological film. I mean, you can certainly mine it for theological positions. Um, We do that all the time, but I think it's a theological film. So, um, so it... You know, if your listeners haven't seen it, it's it's an extraordinary film. Um, it's it's one of the most beautiful films that have ever been made, and one of the most just violent, disturbing films. You know, with its pictures of war, um, it's theological in this way. Um, Malik is testing, just like Milos was, the idea that uh, the world is filled with the glory of God. Um, the way it's said in the thin red line is that in the world, we see a world in which all things are shining. It's one of Malik's, you know, key phrases. Um, the, the film becomes theological to me, or it became theological to me when I realized, you know, I just kept watching it over and over. And I realized that there were a series of voiceovers in this film. And when you track them down, they were, they were voiceovers, um, voiced by a, a figure named Private Train, who has no real role in the movie. He's there at the beginning and the end. Um, but Private Train in these voiceovers is reflecting on his experience uh, of the Battle of Guadalcanal. It's the, you know, it's past. He's, a, he's an adult, I suppose, uh, older adult. And he's reflecting on the battle and he's reflecting on it in these voiceovers by addressing a you. And the more I have thought about it and listened to it, it's just like um, Augustine in his confessions, speaking the story of his life, reflecting on it, his history, back to God, to a you. So it's private train reflecting on the battle of Guadalcanal. And what he saw was glory, all things shining, um, intermixed with the most terrible darkness and as he retells the battle, um, he shows us different figures responding to that glory darkness mix in different ways. Some of them become skeptics and say, nothing lasts, you have to take care of yourself. Uh, but other characters become filled with the love of others and give themselves up voluntarily for their brothers. Um, and so as Train is reflecting on this, he's reflecting on what he calls a wrestling that goes on in each of us between skepticism and seeing the glory of the world. And finally, he he comes to the conclusion, or the film does, that by passing through the darkness or by passing through that skepticism, um, we really see the world as given back to us as a kind of a gift, which is exactly the position of uh, that theologians have come to when they think about this doctrine of creation. So it doesn't oh, really... Sure, it doesn't just go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. It doesn't just describe these theological positions, but you could say, you know, Sergeant Welch has one position and Private Wit has another position, but it actually takes these positions and makes and weaves them into a single sustained act of thinking, just like a poem would do. 
Sure, so sure. That's what makes it lyric or theology for me. Mm-hmm. Sorry, sorry. Oh no, that's all right. That's all right. I was just going to say I've I've only seen it a couple times myself, but I, when I read your chapter, uh, it occurred to me that I probably should have noticed the Augustinian structure of it. Uh, it's just that I didn't. So I I really appreciated that reading of it. Um, now, I mean, another movie that you write about, uh, The New World, is one that I have not seen. Uh, but what caught my eye here was your examination of Sappho's words, uh, translated into English, I assume, and their commentary on a North American story. Uh, so how does that courtship of, of Pocahontas and Rolf take shape, you know, with the help of Sappho's words and under Malik's directorial guidance? Yes, I'll have to lay some of that out for your listeners. But um, so um, in the New World, it's the name of the film, Malik is 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 retelling the story of Pocahontas. <laughs> Pretty straightforward thing to do. Um, and um, Pocahontas, in his version of the story, is the is the lyric observer. So she does what Private Train did in the in the Thin Red Line. And what she's looking at is the glory of God. She calls God the great mother. Um, She sees the glory of the great mother, the glory of God. She sees it in the beloved. And that's um, in the first half of the film, it's um, John Smith, you know, who she famously saves from getting his head crushed. And in the second half of the film, after he abandons her, it's um, John Rolfe, who she marries and has an even deeper um, relationship with. Um, So let's see how I can say this. Um, Just like Private Train passed through darkness and saw the world given back to him in the war story as a gift, so Pocahontas passes through the darkness of losing her true love, John Smith, and um, then finds out of her despair, love given back to her as a gift again in in John Rolfe, who's a whole different kind of lover. And his love is visible to her because she's passed through that darkness. So she's really wrestling lyrically with, you know, the problem of the beloved, but it's really the beloved as a reflector of the divine. So Sappho, that's, that's really odd, isn't it? So Sappho is the first our first lyric poet, um, probably. She's um, we have some fragments of her poetry in in Greek from I don't know six hundred BC, something like that. And in one of her most famous fragments, there's a triangle, and Sappho is is speaking to her lover, and her lover has her eyes on somebody else. So there's a triangle. So she's speaking to her lover and knows that she doesn't have her full attention and she's her skin is on fire and she's burning up with jealousy and longing and all that sort of stuff somehow are you following me somehow when pocahontas then is meditating (laughs) on the loss of her lover and then later on meditating on the gaining of this new lover the language of sappho runs through her head so or runs through the film and she voices it. So that tells me then, um, Pocahontas hasn't read Sappho. <laughs> that tells me then that, that our, our ears, our eyes are really being directed, not just at this particular story, this particular 
sort of love triangle in the film, but we're also asked by the director to see that he as well is wrestling with what we all are wrestling with in our approach to our beloveds and then seeing through our beloveds, you know, the true beloved that they reflect. So oh, sure, almost, sure. almost all Malik films, if you have good ears and, or read enough books or are lucky, you can hear traces of Kierkegaard and, um, and the Bible and, you hear Job and you hear Sappho and you, you hear Whitman and you hear, you hear all kinds of stuff and it makes them non-realistic, even though the, the films, the, 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 the images are strikingly realistic, but it makes them lyric. It makes them inventive acts of wrestling with these theological problems. So that's, that's really, it's interesting that you, you know, you picked up that bit about Sappho. It's, oh, sure. Like, I, I, yeah. And I'm sure part of the reason is back when I was an English professor myself, I mean, I often paired uh, that particular uh, fragment of Sappho with selections from the biblical Song of Songs. Right. So that we compare, you know, two very different approaches to, you know, lyrically representing uh, this, you know, emotional experience of romantic attraction and you know, the, the, the difference could hardly be more stark between Song of Songs and Sappho. Yeah, but but then when you think about it, the the loss that Sappho is dealing with and approaching her lover through, you know, what we've been calling darkness or all this kind of stuff mm -hmm. is not so different from the Song of Songs in which, you know, the lover does not have the beloved all the time. So there's, sure, distance, sure. there's distance involved in there as well as there is in our wrestling with God, whose glory is both everywhere visible and <laughs> nowhere lasting, you know? So, right, right. So, yeah, they're different, but they're not different in some sure, ways. Sure, sure. Well, Tree of Life might be the single film that draws the most words out of the most theologians. So I want to give you a chance to show us how a film exploring family grief, really, also meditates on the, uh, on the character of nature and grace. So uh, to revisit the question from earlier, uh, what kind of theology does Tree of Life do with nature and grace? Okay, so so that's probably Malik's most famous film, I think, at least in theological Christian circles. And, oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, every theological blog, I think, uh, had yeah. to have at least one post on Tree of Life. Yeah, but it's an extraordinary movie, and it's really pretty difficult. But a, a simple way to think about it is... Um, is, is to start where you did, that it's essentially a family drama. And it's very close to Malik's family as well. Three brothers, Texas town, oil man, father, all that sort of stuff. So it's in a way, Malik reflecting on some version of his childhood. At least we think he doesn't do interviews. So you just read it from the film. So in the film, there's a, a midlife um, architect named Jack O'Brien, played by Sean Penn. And he's He's reflecting on a single day in the film. He's reflecting on his childhood and on his loss of the sense that the world is filled with the glory of God, essentially. And as the day goes on, he, he speaks to God, to you, just like Augustine did, just like Private Train did. He speaks to God about how he's drifted away and why he's drifted away. And as he does that, he, just like Augustine, he goes through again the details of his family life. 
and how he saw God, the glory of the world through his mother and through his brother, and how he turned away from it through the skepticism of, of his father, who was all about, you know, you're on your own. It's a dog eat dog world. And he realizes as he, as he thinks through these in his midlife crisis, that he has all of his life been called to wrestle with these two impulses. And he's gone dead for 20 years because he got tired of it. But on this day, he's actually wrestling through those two impulses again. And by the end of the film, he finds the world coming back to life through that wrestling. Now it's Sean Penn. So it's just like a little crinkling of the eyes and a half smile, but, but, but he does respond to the world. And at one point early in the film, he's remembering his mother who was raised by, by the nuns saying they told us that there were two ways of going through the world. One is the way of nature and the other is the way of grace. And those are the, those are the two currents that Milos, sorry, Malik is wrestling with in each of these films. The way of nature is his father's path, which he has inside of him, which we all do in a way, which says, Nobody's going to do it for you. You have to do it through effort. Um, you you can never be careful enough. Um, you know, it's a dog eat dog world. But the way of grace, which is what his mother demonstrated him and his brother, says no. The world is a gift that is given to us. And there's an extraordinary part of this film. This is where sometimes people walk out or they do a lot of grumbling, in which Jack is imagining his mother when she got the news of his brother's suicide. And Jack would have been not in the house. He would have been in his 20s and away from home. But he imagines his mother getting this news and walking out into the woods and crying out to God as we all would do, you know, as Job does, you know, why did this happen? Did you forget me? Did you turn your eyes? What? Why have I done it? Why, why have you done this? And her cries are answered by, by a half hour, non-narrated, no plotted, view of the big bang essentially the creation of the universe and you only realize if you think about it and feel it really deeply that god just answered her cry where were you with this picture of creation being overwhelmingly given to her and to all of us as a gift god calling us to respond to him to participate in his nature with him so she's answered in the same way that job is answered by God saying, were you there when I created the world? <laughs> you know, when all the, you know, the children of God responded with joy. So, um, so the, the film is a wrestling. It says it pretty clearly with these two ways. And it's not choosing between them. It's saying that, or at least for Malik, the two of them fighting themselves out inside of us is what finally shows us a way to God, a way to seeing God, a way to being alive you know, the way, way Brueggemann was talking about that way of being live in our souls. So it's a great film. You, you can tell I really like it. It's, oh yeah. 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 And it's the one that I started thinking about Malik. And then once I had that film sort of in my head, I started, you know, I got all the DVDs and I just worked my way forward and back. And sure. And in the chapter on Malik, I, it's a little long, but I look at seven films that wrestle in very inventively different ways on exactly these issues. So, right. so it was no accident that there was bits of Augustine and bits of theology and these things. I realized after a while, it was really a sustained project. And mm -hmm. that's what, you know, that's what I would like 
people who care about Malik to to see <laughs> and sure, to use my sure. use my book as a guide into ways of thinking about the sort uh, of sustained version of this thinking. Right, right. And listeners, as Tom said, uh, we've only talked about uh, three of the films. The the Malik chapter alone goes through seven films. So you definitely need to go out and get this book and read this book. Uh, but in the interest of time, Tom, uh, if Terrence Malick is the filmmaker that theologians love the most, Marilyn Robinson must be the novelist that theologian, theologians most love to write about. Uh, and you explore one good reason why her novels take shape in conversation with John Calvin and Jonathan Edwards at several turns. And their questions are theological questions, the questions these novels pose. So to dig into Calvin first, uh, in what sense does Robinson get at Calvin, not through the uh, battles translation that sits on my bookshelf of the Institutes of the Christian Religion, but instead through uh, Thoreau and Melville and Dickinson? Uh, in what ways are those uh, texts that most of us associate with an American literature class Calvinist texts? Yeah, so great question. So I fell in love with Robinson um, just, just like I did with Malik in The Tree of Life through her novel, Housekeeping, which I read in 1980 when it came out. Um, I was in graduate school and I pulled it off the shelf of a bookstore back when we still had bookstores. And um, I remember that. Yeah. And it's the <laughs> most extraordinary. It's my favorite novel of, of all time. It's the most extraordinary book. And um, so it's the story of a, it's, it's written by a young girl named Ruthie, Ruth. And it's, you know, it, you can tell Melville's behind it because it begins, my name is Ruth. You know, it begins. Right, right, it, right. It, it's almost quoting Moby Dick. So Ruth is looking back over her life and she's describing living through a series of deep losses, just like all of these artists do, and confronting a world that seemed to her to be utterly radiant, filled with glory and utterly inexplicable and bewildering at the same time. And she's just describing being led through this world by one surviving relative. But what's incredible about the book is that she does it in the most amazing language. It, the book is really almost a series of prose poems. Um, she has this individual, vivid, imaginative voice in which she's continually picking up bits of the world and sort of mining them for their their deeper implications. Well, Robinson um, um, told us, uh, she said in a couple of interviews, and I've talked to her about this, that she found that language in the 19th century writers that you named, in, in Emerson and Melville, Thoreau, Dickinson, that she, she loved. And she had been writing a series of exercises in her notebooks trying to sound like these writers or trying to figure out how their writing worked and eventually those exercises became um ruthie's um movement through the world in that book so housekeeping came out and um a lot of people fell in love with it after a year or two and it became a, a text read in a certain kind of way but she had wasn't really read in the way i think that that most spoke to her. So she then spent something like a decade, I think, trying to figure out where that language that she had used for Ruthie came from. Where did Dickinson and Thoreau and Emerson come from? <laughs> and so she read, you know, the philosophers they might have read as adults, but more than that, she started to read the 
the theological text of the culture, the things that everybody sort of knew and that were, um, you know, they were just the, the air people breathed, whether they were believers or not. They would hear it from the pulpit. They would hear snatches of it here and there. And she eventually read her way into Calvin. And she read the Institutes. But when she read the Institutes, particularly book one, she found in Calvin, and I went back and read it too, and there it is. But she found in Calvin this focus on creation as theater. Calvin uses that image. Creation is a kind of theater in which beauty is addressed to the human perceiver, essentially to see what we will make out of it right? That we're on a stage and God is showing us these things, seeing what we can make out of the glory that he's surrounded us with, um, drawing us into a confrontation with his um, grandeur. And each moment then of experience becomes, as it was for Ruthie, becomes in Calvin a kind of a, a test and it becomes a chastening and it becomes a chance to grow. So she found in Calvin essentially a, a lyric poet. Now he wasn't writing lyrically, but he was almost a lyric theorist, I think. He 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 was showing her where Dickinson would have come from. Dickinson, right, famously is focused on the individual and perception. And Dickinson will talk about these these emotional states in which the mind breaks or we fall into some sort of dark area and in which we see then something grander at the end, right? We, we, we come through this to these deeper perceptions of ultimate reality. So, so, so Robinson started to say, that's got to be Calvinist. So she read a lot of Calvin and then she read Edwards and, and she had had a little bit of Edwards from an undergraduate, but she read him more carefully too. And then the four Gilead books that fit followed after a gap of 24 years, <laughs> suddenly um, Gilead and then the three books that followed came out, they are more explicitly theological, right? The characters know some Calvin, some of them were preachers or kids of preachers and that sort of thing, but they're in a way not, not different in their deepest bones from that first book, Housekeeping, in which you wouldn't have thought Robinson was doing theology. I remember reading that in 1980 and thinking, you know, I was a young Christian at the time and thinking, am I the only person in the world that realizes how biblical <laughs> all of this is? And I think in a way, maybe she didn't even realize how biblical, how, how theological all of that was. You know, she was just imitating Thoreau and, and Emerson. Sure, sure. But she sure found out, <laughs> you know. And, yeah, and the, yeah. Well, well, a couple things come to mind. And, and one of them is that, uh, you know, uh, if every theological blog 20 years ago had a post or three on uh, Terrence Malick's, um, oh goodness, which film? I, I just forgot the name Tree of, of the film. Tree of Life, probably. Tree of Life, that's what it is. I, I, I was trying to say City of God because of Augustine, but no, it's Tree of Life, right? Uh, you know, about, usually about a month and a half later, they would have a trio of posts on Gilead. So, I mean, Robinson is another one of those writers that, you know, uh, people who do you know, theology for a non-academic audience just love Marilyn Robinson and with good purpose, good reason. Right. But the other thing that occurs to me, and, and I mean, this is more of a, my own confession than anything is, um, you know, because of my own intellectual centers of gravity, uh, I have let uh, Friedrich Nietzsche kind of tell me who Ralph Waldo Emerson is because, you know, I, I, I learned 
sometime, you know, 25 years ago that, you know, um, a volume of Emerson essays was something that Nietzsche always carried with him. Uh, but your your book makes me realize I need to start thinking a little bit more about uh, what came before Emerson as well as who picked him up later. Yeah, right. I mean, all these <laughs> things are in grand conversation. And, absolutely. absolutely. And, uh, and really, my book is just trying to help people get away into that conversation because you can spend your life. <laughs> oh, sure, sure. Listening to these voices. Now, now, I do want to talk a little bit more about Gilead, because the way that you write about it, it seems to be an exploration of what salvation looks like. And if you'll allow me a, a an analogy, uh, I mean, it, it seems like it is sort of an a modern American uh, attempt to do what Dante did with Paradiso instead of Inferno or Purgatorio, to say, this is what is possible in the light of divine grace. So talk about that for a little bit. What are some of the ways that Gilead shows its characters operating at the height of their moral powers? So, yeah, so, so in Gilead, so I bet a bunch of your listeners will know this. Uh, the central figure is Reverend John Ames, and he's really telling the story of his life up till up till the moment of writing to his young son for he's he's dying and he wants his young son to have some record of his life so he's trying to explain to his son how he sees the world and he sees the world in the way that we've been talking about he sees it as filled with glory and filled with darkness um he tells his son that um we're surrounded by glimpses or parables of an embracing incomprehensible reality which is a a beautiful thing to say and the first half of the book is pretty straightforward about it he just describes the beauty of sunlight on drops of water and the way mechanics talk when they don't think anybody's listening to them and you know the way his grandfather was when when his hands start to shake he's talking about the beauty of the world um and he talks about how we're called to to bless those particulars and through those to see the creator so that's pretty straightforward but in the second half of the book and this is why the book becomes this wonder um a, a figure comes <laughs> comes into town and it's 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 jack bowton who's the 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 ne'er-do-well son of his best friend and who's named after john ames and as ames in the act of writing this book these letters to his son this book as Ames tries to deal with Jack Bowton, he finds himself caught in a moral dilemma. So you said something about at the height of moral powers, and I think that's right. But at the height of his moral powers, he confesses that he's a failure, <laughs> that, that Jack Bowton frightens him, that he knows Jack Bowton's history, that he's afraid Jack Bowton is after his wife or is going to do harm to his son as he's done harm to other people. And he finds himself fearful and vulnerable and, and old <laughs> and, and not able to do what his theology says he should do. And the beauty of the book is that he spends 100 pages or so day after day in his letter writing journal to his son, wrestling through that, and then finally getting himself to the point where through grace, he's able to see the beauty in Jack and to bless him. There's, there's a scene where he baptizes him. Essentially, he puts his hand on his, on his head and rebaptizes him. So it's, it's moral thinking, but it's, um, 
not without a lot of drama and pitfalls and dead ends and confession the way that you talked about earlier. Sure, sure. I mean, I I think the reason that Dante came to mind is because of the scene in Dante where, um, you know, Thomas Aquinas and I think it's St. Bonaventure, but I might be getting the second figure wrong, but one a Dominican and one a Franciscan sing each other's praises for pages and pages, which, you know, in the 21st century, when I tried to teach it to undergrads, you know, I I would jump and gesticulate and, you know, wildly say, you just have no idea, you know, just how much more intense this was than, you know, Hillary Clinton saying nice things about Donald Trump. Like, this is much more intense than that. (laughs) Yeah. So that's right. The second half of the book then is intense in that way. And it's Mm -hmm. it's intense in, in the sense that the world and the moral dilemma demands, the moral dilemmas are new in the moment, you know? And it's like Ames has been preparing all of his life for this moment as, you know, as in a way we all are, you know, that, that grace comes to us or the demands in this theater that we're part of the demands that God gives us through creation, through the particulars come to us anew moment by moment by moment. Mm -hmm. What you thought you knew (laughs) last week, you know, you're, you have to abandon and you have to face it up again. Right. right. That's why it's such a great book. It's really a beautiful book in that way. Indeed. Well, Tom, I've not left us a lot of time for Annie Dillard, so I'm going to let you take this segment where you will. As we invite our listeners to read your book, would you want want to focus on Dillard's sort of extravagance when it comes to creation or her notion that creation is perpetual emergence of matter from spirit or on some other feature of her books and the way that they lyrically inhabit creation? Yeah, so so Dillard is my last um, creator. She's an essay writer. She's most well known for Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, um, which was written in 1974. When I got this job at Virginia Tech, I thought I had I had know I knew the book. I loved it, and I thought, oh, she's going to be my neighbor <laughs> because Roanoke is actually pretty close close to Blacksburg. So so that's her most famous book, and it's an extraordinary book, Pulitzer Prize winner, and. What I talk about are are kind of a trilogy of books like Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. So there's that one, and then uh, a book called Holy the Firm, and then her her essentially last book called For the Time Being. And those three books are essays, essentially, in which she's studying creation. She's a great naturalist, and she's convinced, like all the writer, all the artists I'm looking at, that that matter is charged with God's presence. The way that she puts it, it's really interesting. She says matter is plunged into into God. It's separate from him, but yet it rests in him. And that our job, she says, in each of these books is to simply attend, to pay attention, to be conscious of what's going on. So the reason if people don't know her her books or not past Pilgrim or Tinker Creek, the reason she's worth reading is that she's one of the great attenders that we have. I mean, she just trains you how to pay attention. And and these three books are they're 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 structurally really smart and interesting. They design different ways that she forced herself to attend to the world, to become aware of God's presence through kind of a darkness. And just to say it simply, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek has 
is in two parts. There's a dark way and there's a light way and the two are in kind of conflict, but different parts of the book. Um, Holy the Firm is a, is a three-part book in which she looks at the world one way and then another way and then is broken and then sees it radiant at the end. And then her last book, um, for the time being, she essentially takes seven or eight essays and breaks them into pieces, fragments them, and almost allows them to randomly push against each other, sort of giving us the world back in these just new and interesting formulations. So they're difficult books, but I tried to give the reader lots of help and well, well worth spending time on. Right, right. I mean, I encountered a Pilgrim at Tinker, Tinker Creek, which is the only th only one of the three that I've read cover to cover as a an English major back in the 1990s. And yeah, I mean, you know, what what really impressed me was that, again, uh, you know, it wasn't a kind of allegorizing reading of creation, um, you know, like you might find in Jonathan Edwards or, or someone like that. But, you know, it is, uh, as you said, I mean, a kind of attention uh, that. Well, I mean, that that insists that, you know, that the particulars of creation and not Never. merely their uh, sort of, you know, metaphorical analogs are worth paying attention to. That's right. And that's the great lyric insight. And that's the great theological insight that I'm sort of trying to bring together. That's right. And she's just a brilliant example of somebody practicing that in new, you know, and I think really, really important ways. Very good. Well, Tom, here at the end, I want to pose one more variation on this episode's kind of theme question. Um, since preachers and theologians already love Malick movies and Robinson novels, um, you know, what is one of the overarching gifts that your book unveils for readers and viewers that perhaps they've not yet seen in these lyric works? Uh, what will they be able to see having read your book, having read your book, pardon me, uh, that maybe didn't occur to them before? Uh, yeah, so um, I guess one of the things I hope I'm demonstrating is that these, you know, maybe three or four works that that many, I think, you know, Christians who care about imaginative stuff know that these three or four works are placed in entire careers. And, and my book tries to lead people through those entire unfolding careers and, and to show just the brilliant way these ideas are inhabited. You know, they're not just, they're not just illustrated, but they're lived within. And, and, I found living with these things for so long, I, I found it inspiring, challenging, throws threw me off kilter, unsettled me, um, took me down and lifted me up. And I think the longer you live with these works, especially the works in context of a whole career, um, the more I think that's got the possibility of, of happening. Um, and then maybe I, I would say that um, I'm, I'm hoping that readers will find that and I've said it already, but these these works don't simply illustrate theological ideas, but they're act actively working within them. They're actively making progress, pushing the boundaries, redrawing the boundaries, um, not giving up. And it's it's inspiring to think that these are not just abstract ideas and texts in books that we could study, but here are living human beings um, probing and being challenged and being broken and being remade and undone and lifted up um, through these acts of thinking. And listeners, I'm going to go ahead and second what Tom just said. I mean, one of the good 
gifts that this book gave me as I read it, uh, you know, as no doubt you've heard in my questions, uh, I'm one of those people who read the text that, you know, Christian college English majors in the 1990s read, uh, but I really wasn't familiar with the uh, full careers of any of these writers. And uh, this is something that context really is one of the gifts of this book. So Tom, well, I've been at the wheel for uh, most of this conversation. So in the spirit of hospitality, I'm going to let you have the last word. What do you want our listeners thinking about Milos, Robinson, Dillard, Malik, or whatever else as we head for the door? <laughs> well, maybe I would say this, that um, I think this is an incredibly rich time that we're living in um, and an incredibly rich artistic time that we're living in, and especially for Christians. And I don't think as Christians, we need to simply look back on, on the great works of our tradition although it's important to do that. But I think that there are that there are creators among us <laughs> right now who are, who are doing this, this important work. And it's, it's work that I think sustains and comforts and stands alongside of us and leads us ever more deeply into making sense of the world and experiencing God. And, and I think, you know, I don't, I don't want anybody to, just casually dismiss the work that's being done at the moment because we live in a we live in a really rich moment. Um, but there's so much around us. I I thought I would clear a few trees and <laughs> point some directions. Tom Gardner, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Glad to do it. Listeners, thank you for downloading and listening in. The book is Lyric Theology from Baylor University Press. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our audio editor is Britt Stack, and I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord. <laughs>